0: Happy Sunday. Um, we're going to start by discussing a few things that I've encountered lately. We call it Sundays with stories. We usually tell stories about people who other people know, so that we're all sort of in the same ballpark. But I'm going to tell a few stories that are apropos our our last discussion about community, and then go from there. And hopefully, they're as relatable as I think they might be.
1: We uh, the, I lose track sometimes of which channel we're on and what event has been posted. But we talked about how the modern tendency is to discard community in favor of professional help. Right. Because actually the loss of community is a major source of the problems and our increasing reliance on outside help, ex- quote, expert help, medicalized very often, is in fact at the base root of our ever increasing problems so when that was one of the last uh one of our last podcasts and now you have kind of a chance as you often do you're very much you're enmeshed in a number of communities it's one of your great strengths and you live in a place as i keep sending you emails that's described as one of the great communities in the United States. I I don't know, am I allowed to mention South Burlington was listed in this, I get these lists as the least stressful environment in the United, municipal environment in the United States. I said, oh, for God's sake, I mean, there's 10 billion communities, so, Uh, kudos to you for living there but you know I, i don't think you're the source of everything but maybe you're doing a bit to reduce the stress in south uh burlington but now you've taken your show on the road a little bit but as you know you do that through lpp of course you're talking to people around the world so you were you were dealing with a a family matter or a funeral
0: yeah and i can i was hesitant to say anything last time we spoke because nothing had been talked about or you know i didn't know what state the family was in but i can say now i'll I'll even say his name my cousin's name was josh rhodes and um my family generally isn't as connected as we could be and this my cousin josh has always keyed into that and he wishes he wished that we were and um, he, he always kept in touch. He lived in Pennsylvania. I'm in Vermont. So it's not like it's that far away. It took us eight hours to drive down there. I mean, it's, you got to plan the trip, but it's not like it's so far away that we had a good excuse to be estranged from, from one another. Um, and he would always, he went out of his way to, Give me encouragement for my accomplishments. I mean, he was keeping track of everything that I did, and he would message me. I think somebody at the funeral even mentioned that his, he did his best thinking at night. So he would message me at one in the morning, saying, "Hey, I read this article that you wrote, and here's what I think about it." And wow, what good work you're doing! And he had great things to say about everybody. So it was, it was, um, it shouldn't have taken a, a tragedy to realize what I realized as I went down there, but. I'm happy that we did. We all got together. Our family and from all different States got together and we sort of promised each other. Let's not let that much time pass again before we get together.
1: Sure that you were at, that you were at the funeral of, of Josh. Is that, uh, I don't know.
0: Right. Right. So we went down for yeah. Thanks for, but I drove down for uh, Josh's funeral and, um, actually they called it a celebration of life, which is what he would have wanted. So it was like, uh, his favorite food was pizza. We all ate pizza and told stories about our relationships with him. Why I'm saying this is that you might think, well, not might think, a death of a family member is a traumatic experience. I mean, if there's such, if trauma means anything, I mean, I don't know what is more traumatic. Especially, you know, I was with my uncle, his father, um, and his mother, and his sister, who was. We called them twins, even though they're years apart, but they, they were very in tune to each other. And that's a tragic event. And what I thought was remarkable about how they dealt with it is that they had continued celebrations, get-togethers, told stories. And I could just see it was just so evident how everyone was holding each other up. I mean, adults to kids, adults to adults, when those adults ran out of bandwidth to take care of kids and then switched roles had each other's backs. They, I heard stories about how everyone helped each other get through it. And I guess all I want to say about that is that I'm, I don't feel worried that my family's going to get stuck in the trauma cyclone. I feel like all of his direct family members, his sister, his parents, um, his nephews, nieces, friends, uh, they they feel this is tragic and you can you know, slowly, as you know, with a death of a family member or friend, you start going around your normal life and wherever that person had a place in your life, you find kind of a void or, or reminded. And it seems like each time that's happening that there's another family member or community member to call on. There were people there. Um, my cousin Josh worked at, he was a sound engineer. So he worked at all these different music venues and there were people there that spoke who, uh, who mentioned we don't really know your family very well, but we knew Josh. And um, so his family is important to us. So we just want to know that down the road, we're, we're having a uh, charity event. So we're going to have all these different musicians and bands play there. And every single dollar we make, we're, we're uh, donating to the family. He left, um, he left a child behind his son behind. And it was remarkably it was remarkably sad to see. I mean, he's three years old, and so there'd be pictures of him popping up at this funeral. And there's a three year old trying to understand what's going on. And so you'd see pictures of dad. And so you could tell that there's something there that needed to be dealt with. And everyone just gathered around this kid to do their best to help him make sense of things, be okay, raise him. None of it's enviable. It was terrible i was it was a sad weekend and yet i felt completely uplifted by the camaraderie sense of family and sense of community that was there so i couldn't help thinking as we had left as i left we had done a podcast about as you say community being ameliorative for all sorts of things and community in this case is was and still is and i think continue to will be uh continue to be ameliorative in terms of coping with the loss of a family member and community member who meant a lot to everybody. Um, What I'm trying to say is that sort of flies in the face of trauma theorists, It's not a perfect argument. And you might even say, well, isn't that nice? All of you privileged people have the community and capacity to do all this stuff. And then again, that is sort of what we're talking about is that for people who have less privilege and less access to those kinds of resources, the answer isn't to designate a label or um, ongoing, what do you call pathologizing of their state of mind? It's to help them enhance their sense of community and their sense of purpose and togetherness and family and things like that. And so- you can't
1: outsource it. You can't say, Oh, they don't have a community. Let's send them someplace else where they'll get help. But then they're going to go back to where they live. They're not moving. Right. So when Nora Volko goes to Kensington and Philadelphia, everybody there says we need community resources. And she goes, really? You know, I've been head of the NIDA for two decades. I never knew that. I thought that we could just treat people for addiction.
0: And it's tempting, though, to say, well, you could do that. Like, if for somebody who really has none of the resources... Maybe there is something medical or therapeutic that's a proxy for community. That's very tempting. That's like we can, you know, you can offer people something like some sort of a Band-Aid and maybe that's the best that they'll get. Uh, My issue with that, and I'm certain yours too, is that aren't you putting a ceiling on their ability to be able to produce some of that community or experience some of that community down the line? People change and their circumstances change, but they won't change for the better If you apply the label, apply the treatment, apply the, you know, whatever it is, that band-aid to them forever and tell them that's the best it gets.
1: In other words, outsourcing is not just an alternative or a neutral option. It's something that deprives the community because you're not focusing on on enhancing the community. You're discounting it, disregarding it and not investing in it. And then you sort of, you know, you're not permanently in treatment. um, And and that resource has now been depleted by the actual supposed helpful treatment.
0: So all I can say, and to put a cap on all of that, is that I'm not going to speak for my cousin, who's not here to speak for himself, but I'm relatively certain that he would be absolutely tickled by the fact that an experience that he, um, of him bringing people together, whether, even though it was because of a tragedy, is not only bringing those people together, but is enhancing my work and outlook, which he always encouraged me to do and to continue doing. Um, I think that brings things back full circle. And it's a pretty, um, I, I couldn't resist, you know, talking about him and, and what I had thought about this weekend.
1: I guess the only I had a theory, I've often had a theory. People have this experience sometimes when a person dies and I always had the theory, why don't we move it forward to before they die? Yeah, right. I mean, I've seen a few episodes of this. Uh, uh, One of the great events in my recent life was, I have an older friend you know, uh, Alta Ann. She had a 90th birthday party. And um, she gathered people, you know, from all around her life to celebrate it. Hmm. And, uh, you know, it was just fabulous. And, you know, you were saying that Josh Rhodes would have really enjoyed this. It's too bad Well, you were regretting it yourself that we didn't do this before. Right. And Josh Rhodes would have enjoyed it.
0: The thing we all came away with, that's exactly it that is that this could happen to anyone at any time so let's not wait for that to happen again before we celebrate each of our lives and accomplishments and you know be able to talk to each other and and get together so i mean it's strongly and i believe that you know sometimes i don't know if this has ever happened you get together with people you haven't seen for a while and you say let's do it again let's not wait but then life happens This time, I I actually believe that everybody's making an effort. I think people are already making plans to get together in the the next few months. And so I think that uh, Josh lived that way anyway. He sort of celebrated everybody, everything, and himself. Um, And you're right. It's just too bad that we didn't come together to do a celebration of life before the tragedy happened. Um, Recently, I I had a discussion with um, a child who's five years old. So I think that I think he's either in kindergarten or is going to be starting kindergarten soon, and that five-year-old had a family member who had an older family member with difficulty with alcohol, and we were there at like a party, and there were adults drinking, and this five-year-old was um, hyper-focused on what people were drinking. Hey, what is that that you have? Is that beer or is that soda? And so come to find out. It's because he had been told that this family member had a difficulty drinking, he wondered and and some of some outcomes that were visible he was explained well that's because of drinking and so now he thought, well I guess that means drinking just does that to everybody so why is everybody drinking and
1: uh, um, they, people were talking to him about negative outcomes of drinking
0: right so he was engaged with me and other people in this discussion about why adults were drinking if this is what happens. And so it was explained to him that, well, adults drink. It's uh, some of the ways that adults are social. And so it's not inherently bad. It's just that if you have too much of it, if you start to um, drink instead of doing other fun things or interesting things in life, then you can get carried away with it and then it can hurt. And then, and the five-year-old immediately understood that he said, well, it's kind of like sugar. So it's like, uh, so I'm like, I I know that if I eat, I love cookies. I know that if I have too many that I don't feel well, plus then I kind of can't go to gymnastics the next day because I'm not going to feel good or perform my best for at at gymnastics it's like that how common sense what we're saying is is so common sense that a five-year-old who's never thought about it immediately intuits the concept i mean it doesn't sound that crazy for for someone that young to interpret that and make the connection well it's just like anything really like uh, whatever it is, sugar, soda, anything that I enjoy, but I'm not supposed to do too often. Sometimes the kid and his family eat out at restaurants, but they don't do it every night. And so why wouldn't they do it every night? A five-year-old, it's so easy a five-year-old could do it is is basically what I'm saying. And so I, I'm i sure you'll have something to comment on about that. But
1: it's almost th- an understanding. Well, we often say... Uh, well, one of our recent conversations was about the uh, sociologists and alcoholism the- theorists who I got uh, natural life processes idea from Harold Mulford. Mm. So what if we never invented the concept of alcoholism? Um, how would we deal with all of these things? And this is sort of an example. This is somebody who hasn't at five gotten a lecture, you know, the Dora Volko HBO special on addiction lecture about what addiction is. And he comes to grips with it as a natural process that people have sometimes pulled into something that's appealing and they go so far into it that it's excessive and harmful and that you need to learn how to balance things. And and your comment, I remember, my email was, you you told him he actually understands addiction better than a lot of experts.
0: That's right. I mean, the adults were trying to think about, well, how do I explain this in a way that makes sense? And I think they were thinking, well, this is so complex that I don't understand it. So how do I break it down for a five-year-old when really they could have been thinking, this is so simple that it's actually nice that a 5 year olds asking because it'll be easy to lay the groundwork for understanding and it's a good learning opportunity. I find that with kids a lot, and in this case, I couldn't help but think about life process program things that we talk about in addiction and just, you know, I um this is this will seem tangential, but uh, I'll pull it back. I was I studied physics for a long time, and I was even writing about it. And there was, I got to talk to a guy, Lawrence Krauss, who's uh, do you know do you know about Lawrence Krauss? He's does the Origins Project at Arizona State University. And he talked about a problem that physicists who are communicators of physics or uh, science, they always try to blow people's minds, like with this super complicated stuff. And it almost sounds like magic. But when really what they should be doing, what he likes to do to his first year students is explaining it in all its boringness, in all its its detail, uh, what this concept is and how you get there so that people can actually map their that knowledge onto something new, rather than learn later that everything they have to unlearn it and then do it again. That just reminded me of this, where it's, you, you could have taught- you,
1: They look for examples, like in the common world right around them, things that people know about. As right. As a, as a good thing.
0: Right, so, but the thing about physics is that there is really counterintuitive stuff going on there that you have to eventually learn. So you have to figure out how to teach it and and stretch that out and teach it in stepping stones. But in this case, it's a little bit different. Like the the ultimate conclusion that a person should reach about what moderation is or what alcohol does or doesn't do to you is super common sense. You don't need to take it further than what that five-year-old said. And so, uh, you know, onward.
1: So um, we did a uh, a a blog post about dealing with why addiction can be hard to deal with. And that was a little bit tricky because we're people who say you can outgrow addiction. So it seems as though we're saying, well, Bob's your uncle, anybody Mm -hmm. can deal with it. But obviously people who contact us at the Life Process Program um, are people who are having some kind of difficulty with it. And so we keyed off that to write a blog post about why is dealing with addiction so hard? Why didn't you pick it up from there then?
0: So three things: one, people off people who are critics of our ideas will often say, "Fine, you win." Eighty to ninety percent of people, whatever people, most people have addiction. What about the people that don't? Aren't they in some sort of a different category? But then there are also, like you say, participants of our program or people who are interested in it who wonder, do we deal differently with people who are in uh, worse circumstances, who seem like they have less hope or fewer resources or any of that stuff. But the thing that really sparked it was I was talking to one of our coaches, uh, Dee Cloward, and she's actually been my coach as I participate in the life process program to try to get a handle on my health, eating, working out, regimen, kind of lifestyle stuff. And I am going to document some of my progress. And she asked me, do you think that in documenting your progress, people will relate, You just naturally relate? And I said, I think so. I mean, addiction is sort of addiction and the process is the same. And she helped me think about, well, what about those people who are asking those questions? What if you're in more dire circumstances? What if people aren't married, have a good job, enjoy music, live in a Non-stressful place like South Burlington, Vermont, you know, are are worried about life and death at any moment. How can you discuss addiction with them? So that's why we wrote the article. And I suppose that our that the thesis of the whole thing was that there isn't a difference except in severity. We always talk about addiction as a sliding scale. The ingredients or the roadmap for combating addiction remains the same. The optimism that you can have could remain the same. And that's harm reduction. You kind of deal with either an individual or a community with their emergent needs and work those out so that they can map onto a process that can be lifelong. That's what the life process program means.
1: And uh, in a way, it's cheating to say most people overcome addiction because the average lifespan, the median point of quitting some addictions, smoking is the most enduring is 24 years Mm. and an alcohol dependent 16 it's less six and five for cocaine and marijuana but who wants to you know smoke for 24 years so right it's cheating to say well if you look at people's lives most people will quit addictions on their own um and then somebody might say well who needs you and we have and so we want to do two things. We want to lay out a road map. We understand how people progress often in the natural way through overcoming addiction. And we can be a resource for doing that. But we don't want to, in presenting our help, remove from the person, you know, create in the person a feeling of dependence either on us or on the, the addiction. We don't call them addictions. We, we have discussions about people's problems. And the last thing that we want to do is to convince people that they have a a lifelong addictive problem. We wanna talk instead refocus on all of the changes that we're helping them to make or that they're making on their own, which point them in a positive direction. It's incremental. It's on like you say, ongoing throughout their lives and it's a matter of conveying agency that it's about them and what it is that they're going to be doing.
0: You mentioned like my cousin Josh, who there's a celebration of life and everyone got together and he would have loved this. And you thought, geez, you wish that he could have been around to see all of that. So what you know, is there a way for families, for communities to do those kinds of celebrations ahead of time? And some cultures have those kinds of celebrations. Um similarly we're sort of asking instead of waiting for a heart attack or whatever it is to get you to stop doing whatever drug or alcohol or, you know, whatever you're tied up in, is there a way to take on whatever that realization or revelation will be when that happens? Is there a way to actually put that front and center now? That's the whole outgrowing thing. Most people do outgrow it, but it takes some either gradual life changes or some event that people become aware, a little bit more aware and mindful in life. How can we bring that mindfulness front and center? And, and if that expedites the process for people who may have outgrown it anyway, I don't, you know, there's no reason, there's no logical reason why that wouldn't work to try to get that sort of more mindful attitude, more um, pro-living, pro-conscious living and enjoying life attitude to people who have worse circumstances. It's just that everyone's, I mean, it's idiosyncratic outcomes for uh, for our broad roadmap,
1: and we want uh, and m- I, you you've you've made uh, helped to make me understand the optimism and hopefulness linkage to Mar- Martin Seligman's work. We pe- we don't want people to come in. I mean, uh, Norovoco had this famous meme addiction. Is a disease of free will. The most important thing is for a person not to ever be discouraged, to appreciate whatever changes they are making, give them a greater sense of self control. For example, uh, people originally thought that a needle exchange, you know, the anti needle exchange people would say, well, look, you're encouraging their addiction. But in fact, the, the better way to look at it is they're finally taking a step to help themselves and mm-hmm. say, well, look, I'm doing something that's improving my health. I'm, you know, still maybe injecting drugs, but look, I've got some control over my health and my habit. And, you know, that, that could be a progressive thing. Well, you know, okay, maybe I don't need to inject drugs or I can take them in a more controlled manner and I can improve other aspects of my life.
0: So in a way, harm reductionists should know this more than anybody. Your drug policy advocates should understand this better than anyone, that you have people in some of the worst circumstances. That's almost like you want to apply this, our model, more so. (laughs) You should more want to apply our model because rather than saying, well, you're beyond help. you should just be stuck in this treatment center, you should be given this pill or whatever it is. You're saying, why don't we figure out how you can take control of some of this? and uh you know make choices for and yourself then, and the
1: gradual path, the progression of control in their lives
0: right so you
1: um you wanted to we had a question about porn addiction you wanted to also introduce a listener question uh i think i understand
0: yeah this is remarkably i have there are several people that i'm working with right now um who will all think I'm talking about them. Only one of them asked the question and I have permission to to share the question in a really similar circumstance. So they're all young men and um, it's either because of restrictions from COVID or injuries or some for some reason, they're in their houses more often and not around other people as often as they would normally be. And so the question I don't have the wording in front of me, but th- basically the question is, um, I've developed this relationship with pornography that I've never had before. I think it's turned into an addiction. So should I be worried that I'm not going to be able to kick this thing? Of course, we just described <laughs> why the person could not be worried that they'll never kick the thing or the, some, some of the um, some of the ways they might think differently about the problem other than it's – all encompassing. Like you seem like you're about to say something.
1: It's 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 funny. Are there any positive sides to people's reference or use of porn during the pandemic? Is there are there ways to balance the negative and the positive? I mean, you know, obviously I mean, it's a whole new realm. During the height of the pandemic, you sort of weren't allowed to meet people unless you were already in a relationship to have sex. Mm -hmm. And so porn or, you know, internet interactions became the way that people really dealt with sex. It was like a whole new universe. And so where once porn, you know, you could say, well, why do porn, or people can put it entirely in negative terms, that, that, that seemed to be too one-sided and, and the pandemic brought that out. So in a way, is that a foundation for trying to talk about m- moderation in the use of porn? Does that give it a little bit better of a landscape for removing it from a strictly addictive standpoint?
0: Right, right. So if you can think about reasons why pornography it has its positive aspect, I mean, it has to have some positive, or else why engage in it in the first place? And this is a person who is who's generally social, you know, global pandemics aside, and works, <laughs> seeks relations. Is single now, but seeks relationships. Is active. You, is used to actively dating, but has was stuck at home and stuck at home with access to the internet and not a lot to think about, you know, what he what he wanted to do. And that is something that we talked about. So what are the positives? And well the positives were first of all, it's something to do. It there are things that he craved and intimacy and he got a proxy for that out of pornography. And now as things open up, he's thinking, well, I'm not exactly sure what the world is supposed to be like now, but there's attached to all this is sort of a dormant prowess that he has for interacting with people that he never really had to think about before. Now he's trying to piece together. Well, how? what is the best way to meet people? How, are, are, how comfortable are they with meeting another person or being out in public now? Um, how do I get back on my feet and introduce myself? I feel sort of antisocial more than I have been lately. I'm just now getting back to work, and this is a young person. I'll say young 20s, and I'm thinking, you know, if you're in your young 20s and are not able to socialize as the way that you normally have, or not able to look for intimacy the way that was normal for you, I almost can't imagine not resorting to that, to something like pornography or some sort of a proxy for getting all of those things. And I just want to say we he and I have already talked about this. But I just want to. um,
1: You want to decriminalize it. First you decriminalize it and then you demoralize it. Right. And then you de-disease it.
0: Right. There's a, I kind of want to just give some encouragement that I can imagine being in that position. And if I were in that position, I wouldn't be scared that I'd be tethered to it forever. But I would be thinking, what, what is it that I want? And you can get a clue about what you want from the reasons why you engage in pornography in the first place. Where, when and where, how is, has it become too much? How has it, you know, detracted from your ability to sort of do other things that you want to do? What are those things that you want to do? How do you do those? What are the next steps? Th- that's really, com- that's the five-year-old could have sort of answered this question in, in a way.
1: Old, uh, right. It's a positive thing that you experience the pleasurable, but if, you know, the five year old knows if you go too far down that track, you get yourself into trouble and you can't do other functional things like right. gymnastics.
0: So, as the there are two things at play here one is how do you reorganize life so that you could feel productive and um, in, in your current circumstance. So you relied on pornography, but now let's just say nothing else opened up and there were no alternatives to being at home. What are some of the things that you can do to reorganize? And on the other hand, the good news is that things are opening up. People can be more social. So you've got that whole network to plug into whenever he's ready. And however, he wants to take those steps and channel outward. So, you know, I'm relatively certain a really young person in this circumstance who's still looking for deciding what he wants to do in life is gonna be okay. I wouldn't probably uh, yeah, go ahead.
1: Wouldn't you? uh you wouldn't send him away to a porn addiction rehab.
0: Right. And I'm not I'm not um besmirching or, or trying to minimize the significance of the impact that it's had on him. I I it's clearly been really hard. I have a question for you, though. This this also came up. I thought this was interesting because I haven't really thought about it in these terms. He's mentioning that, well, he wants to feel good about himself and pornography is not exactly a noble endeavor. And he almost feels like if he had a drug addiction, he'd have more people to talk to at this point. And, uh, you know, it's might be idiosyncratic, but he's feeling like because it's pornography, it's almost like, He's worried that you bring that up to somebody in a casual conversation. Uh, you're a creep or something.
1: I, I agree with him 100%. I mean, it's sort of okay in society now to say, oh, I was addicted to painkillers. That's sort of like a conversation starter. But, you know, are you really going to go to a gathering or a party and say, oh, I was addicted to porn? I, I mean, I see his point exactly.
0: Mm.
1: Um, And and there are people who regard porn, as we were just saying, in totally a negative context. And so, you know, putting it like other areas, I mean, sex is the last, I mean, we're able to talk about drugs and alcohol, um, even with children, before we're able to talk about sex and porn and masturbation. It's sort of the last horizon. So, you know... uh, Obviously, I think you have a gift at relaxing a person around something like that and saying, well, you know, let's just say you're not the only client I have with this issue. Hmm. In fact, if you look at the data and popular Internet sites, it's the number one thing in in, in the world almost. Um, so, you know, welcome to the join the crowd. Yeah. All right. Way, so speaking about your ability to your appeal around the globe, we've talked about your role within the family, uh, your role talking to five-year-olds, your role in uh, diffusing somebody, dealing with a Internet, adi- a porn addiction, uh, you're being recruited by uh a foreign power a foreign power i mean somebody not in vermont to participate in a statewide deliberation about everything about you know what everybody's worried about or even the porn addiction now do you want to cautiously describe your potential employment you know without yeah. revealing who this
0: is yeah so let will just say it's in a different state And I got into this because people who know me who are advocates for people in chronic pain who are not being adequately treated for their pain because of the um, hypersensitivity or hyper-focus on limiting pain pain medicine prescriptions, um, they thought that I would be a good person to try to undo some of this conflict or make sense of this conflict. What's happened is, just in a nutshell, in a state that's a conservative state Two things are happening. One, pain patients are not adequately—they're—they're they're not even—they're just being ignored. Uh, their pain's being ignored because they're—they're they're not able to get pain meds. But also, nobody's looking at their quality of life. They're saying, "Well, you don't need pain meds. You can do these things. You know, like you can do yoga or whatever, whatever they say." Um, not that that's a horrible thing. The horrible thing is that they're not engaging with their patients, trying to figure out what it is getting in the way. And so the impairment and distress in a lot of these patients lives is the pain itself. You know, if they could just get that under control, they don't care how it's getting under control. It could be a medication. It could be a surgery. It could be a new lifestyle change. If they could figure out each one of them, how to manage that, they're saying my life will be okay. Like I, whatever it is, I could take a pill every day. And as long as managing my pain, I'll be okay. And so the hesitancy of course was nationwide with, the CDC's recommendations that a good target would be limiting prescribing. Well this state has come to a they've changed things a little bit. They're trying to relax that regulation so that people could be adequately prescribed even opioid pain medications Thanks but they, f- they feel as
1: that.
0: the problem they feel as though they need to pick up the slack with regulations somewhere else if they're going to be doing that. So it's almost like, well, we can't just say, well, relax prescribing regulations because between you and me, we got to kind of stick with the story about you know, drugs cause addiction. So what they're doing is they're, they're, they want more relaxed prescribing, more people to get pain medications. And don't ask me how they do this logic. They want to shut down some of the local methadone clinics. One of the reasons being a lot of those pain patients were turning to methadone um, and saying just label me addicted you know just say i have a substance use disorder and then i can get the methadone because that's some of the regulation i'm prescribing it that's and obviously then, a pretty
1: then, good way to go we're driving people into the addiction box
0: right and so at the same time uh, on one side of their mouths they're saying well we need to be able to give people adequate care on the other side they're saying we should probably this seems like nefarious that people are going to these it's supposed to be for addiction and Pain patients are going and they don't seem to be working out. We're just giving more pain pills to people who are addicted. um, And that doesn't seem to be working. The reason I thought to bring this up is because, first of all, the question to me is, well, how do we help them make sense of this? How do we help legislators understand that people who have addictions, they need quality of life sort of care the same way that pain patients need quality of life sort of care? So why do they feel like they have to sort of play this balancing act you know you screw one over and in favor of the other we'll have you and i will agree on a lot of it the other reason i wanted to bring it up is because they are against it seems like generally against methadone or substitution drugs for completely different reasons than we would not be in favor of the whole concept of substitution drugs we are what not inf-
1: we talk you- about in the in subsequent podcast to this one.
0: Right. So I think that it's fair to say you can stop me if I'm um, not accurate, but I think it would be fair to say that you and I are concerned with um, the idea and the systematizing of prescribing drugs. The, I, the story that if a person gets a drug, well, that's the best we can do. We can medicate them. And then they can just stay in this system and they'll just come back and they'll come get their dose. And as long as they stick with it, they can be basically okay, but it's probably the best that they'll get and it'll save all of their lives. When at the same time, we see that obviously it's not something's going on where the death rate is surpassing the amount of medication that we're giving people. You can make any argument about that you want, but you can say that it is uh, helping save lives, but the death rates are skyrocketing despite it. Still, we're left with that problem. There must be something else we have to do. Um, but these legislators aren't thinking about it that way. They're, th- they're still... They're just sort of like... Uh, what's her name from New Jersey who didn't want to <clears throat> put in a needle exchange because she thought it would look bad for her politically?
1: Uh, Governor Christine Whitman. Yes. Christine
0: Whitman, yeah, yeah. It's it's similar. There's, they're kind of saying... They're not using logic. What they're doing is they're trying to save face politically by saying, right. "Don't worry, we are hard on this kind of, you know, enabling people. We just want to make sure the pain patients are getting their prescriptions." But, but don't worry, we'll shut this down.
1: It comes from having preconceived. What we're talking about is, well, let's just dial down, like the five-year-old, to the basic question of what's going to enable this person. There are two aspects of it you know, uh, a substance use disorder, uh, their impairment and distress. What can we do to uh, minimize the impairment and minimize the distress? And let's look at the whole panoply of things that we can use. Um, For some reason, I was on a plane returning from England and I was in a business class and I was near a guy who was a provider of a main non-medicated pain relief clinic in a very high um, death rate area. And his whole argument was we need to eliminate painkillers entirely. Mm -hmm. And so we're doing, you know, meditation uh, and visualization and yoga and exercise. And so our reaction would be, what you said well that's all great i mean we're, we're not against um you know, we're for those things but in this really high death rate area how many people are you actually going to reach with all of that
0: mm-hmm.
1: um you know and i said well how many clients do you have at your clinic and they have 20 and so well that's great i don't know if these are more upscale and they have more time you know not everybody's going to come and do yoga you know, how three times a week. And I said, well, that doesn't eliminate the need for painkillers, he was against painkillers. He was a physician. And I'm saying, well, you know, painkillers have a role and we wanna make them available to people at the same time that we don't want them to become, we're against addiction, but we're not against painkillers. We're certainly not against alternative pain relief methods. That's what we're talking about. um chemical non-drug pain relief methods we're 100 for them but we're not gonna eliminate painkillers using those things that's why painkillers were invented and why they're so popular is because they're effective medications for what they do so it's a complex balancing act back to the five-year-old and every effort to kind of short circuit that by saying well well, let's just rely on medications. Um, that's the only people who, who believe that methadone uh, is the only way to deal with a drug, uh, uh, heroin addiction. We reject that point of view. And then we reject the point of view at the totally opposite end of the spectrum, which is, well, let's not rely on drugs at all. That's, that can only be a negative thing. And the complication that we're gonna get into is, um, what is harm reduction? What is mix? And We also discussed you and I, Bob Weir, who had a long time painkiller, whatever, addiction, and the excessive alcohol use. He's about my age, 70 or 70-ish. And he's going to herbal teas and he doesn't drink like he used to, but he still drinks wine. And he re- uses, uh, you know, he's doing uh, exercises and, or, you know, uh, chamomile tea, but everyone's while well, he, was, he still needs a painkiller because he's older and, you know, he's got those gnarled fingers playing a guitar for decades, for 50 years. He, they picked him up when he was like 18 or something off the streets of San Francisco. So I don't know, that's 74, whatever, you know, it's more than half a century and you develop some pain over you know, all those years. So the hardest thing is to create a, a, a balance and not be committed to just relying on one dictum versus another. Oh, no drugs, oh, only drugs.
0: I'll leave this open-ended, but I'll also just close the, the whole thing here before we go on to our next segment. I've asked questions now. I already had suspicions and I've asked questions and asked different people what's going on in this uh, situation that I'm being asked to try to parse or make sense of. And it's sort of, it's the Kathy Bates quote from fried green tomatoes where she says, uh, you know, I'm older and I have better insurance. It's the people who are pressing the legislators right now are older and they have better insurance. They have stability in their lives already, except for this pain they are part of the electorate that can really apply pressure. And the, the Republican uh, legislature there, they're not, they're not making this change because and this, is, this is my thoughts. They're not making this change because they think, oh, well, these people seem really burdened and we wanna do the best, what's best for everybody. So like Bob Weir, we should let them be adults who are, have the capacity of making decisions choosing from a buffet of life options and putting them together as they see fit, they're thinking we need to do something good for optics always because there's going to be another election year in next year or two years. The level, the fundamental problems that really need to be solved to put everybody in a better place will probably transcend our careers. So it's pretty, it's not very motivating to start solving those problems and then retire with there still being problems in place. So, you know, who are the people who uh, can't advocate for themselves? And I don't think it's this direct, but people with addictions tend to have more trouble advocating for themselves when they're in that class of people who maybe don't have insurance or they're getting uh, Medicaid and they're living on the streets. And so these are the population that they kind of don't mind going after in order to to look okay politically
1: you have to use your greatest skills i think it's going to be a challenge because i know you were part of your county task force that you're going to have to convey these ideas to people that you know there there's no downside to them christine whitman after refusing to do needle exchange got reelected.
0: Yeah, right, uh, exactly. Now
1: she spoke it, and she's viewed as a great Republican. She spoke at the Democratic National Convention. Nobody looks at the fact that um, thousands of people died because she eliminated, she, she, it, it was a political no-loser for her. And so you're going to have to use your greatest gifts, I know you have it, to explain the inner workings of this and why it's a good thing and the right thing and helpful to people while enabling them to supersede their purely political and public considerations.
0: When we talked to Pat Denning, which is one of our first episodes on this podcast that I rebroadcasted, you were asking her about, well, so what do you say to people who are uh, who push against harm reduction or who worry that, well, I as a clinician, I don't want to be seen as causing more problems or somebody dying under my auspices or ever saying that it's okay to use a drug or that it's not a bad thing. And she answered something that I think you would answer too. Like this person had their problems before they came to me. I'm not making them do one thing or another. They're already doing it. I'm trying to figure out how can you live your lifestyle in a safer way or in a way that you feel like you're making some progress. That sort of mindset is where I think these people are politically. They're saying, except (laughs) opposite, they're saying, well, these problems are already occurring. And I know that playing it safe means that I can kind of let the problems continue occurring as long as I'm doing a nice looking thing and I'll probably get reelected. They could switch that. They could say these problems are already occurring and, you know, I might not solve them, but I can at least improve on the problems and I can shine a light on the improvements that I'm making and explain, you know, how I'm lifting up the community in some ways that might not be tangible unless I shine the light on it. But anyway, that's the motivation I'm looking for.
1: Zach. Addiction political consultant. I, I don't know that that huh. exists yet.
0: Yeah, well, all my jobs don't exist. So maybe I'll make a new one.
1: <laughs> how to do harm reduction. So our next sister, our brother podcast to this one is going to be on the evolution of harm reduction. And uh, you'll let people know how they can tune into that one though.
0: Yeah, let's end this one now. I'll say happy Sunday to everybody. And I will have a, uh, at the end of this video, there'll be a little thumbnail video that you can click to listen to our part two on harm reduction, which will be on your channel. So thank you, Stanton. We'll talk to you soon.